Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. After hearing your word, enjoying each other's company, fellowship, a small slice of what I think heaven is going to be like, I pray, Lord, that you would take the songs that we have sang, the special that Roy done, and now your word, and let it do that work in our hearts that it needs to do. You know where everyone in this room is. I pray you would meet them where they need you to meet them. We ask in your name. Amen. Welcome back to our study in 2 Samuel. We're going to do all of chapter 16 today, so let's dig right in. As Roy was saying, this is the passage of Scripture that has the elements of someone wanting to behead someone else and sex on a rooftop. Veggie Tales would never make a movie about this. Look at verse 1 with me. When David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddle donkeys, and on them two hundred loaves of bread, one hundred clusters of raisins, one hundred summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, What do you mean to do with these? So Ziba said, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. The first person that David meets is Ziba. Now Ziba had been one of Saul's land managers as well as a custodian of Jonathan's crippled son Mephibosheth. David asks him where Mephibosheth is and Ziba says that he has also sided with Absalom in the rebellion. We're going to find out in chapter 19 that this is all just a lie. And that's what bearing false witness means, by the way. I witness this person doing something, but in actuality, that is false. Ziba lies to this king and does his best to discredit his young master, Mephibosheth. Now, at this time, David was weary and deeply wounded within, and so it wasn't the best time for him to be making character decisions. He accepted Ziba's story, which was later discredited, and made a rash judgment that gave Ziba the property that rightly belonged to Mephibosheth. Proverbs 18.13 tells us that he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and it is shame to him. But at this point, David is so overwhelmed with sorrow that almost any expression of loyalty would be appreciated. 
And so without thinking or even praying about it, he gives everything Mephibosheth owns to Ziba. Let me ask you, can we at times when we are emotionally down or in fear or in a quandary, can we be susceptible not to take God's counsel but to follow a lie? Let's all be very careful about believing things about other people through gossip without any proof. Maybe David is thinking, I need all the friends that I can get right now. And so Ziba, I'll embrace you. Especially since Ziba shows up with some much needed supplies. But think about this. Has David prayed for any sort of physical needs? No, he has not. All he's prayed for is spiritual guidance and providential help. And yet God is providing his physical needs also without him even asking. Didn't Jesus say that if God takes care of sparrows and flowers, will he not also take care of us? And so we see God using an evil man for his own good purposes. And Ziba in verse 4 with a great show, I imagine, says, I humbly bow down before you, O my Lord the King. The Living Bible translates that as blah, 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 blah. Not really, but that's what it means. Look at verse 5. Now when King David came to Behurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also Shimei said, thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. We are now introduced to a new character, Shimei. He comes out throwing rocks and calling David a rogue. This is Old Testament trash talking, like when we would say, your mother wears army boots. Actually, probably nobody would say that anymore. That's what happens when you're raised watching the Three Stooges. It took some doing, but I was actually able to procure a picture of Shimei. Lisa, put it up for us. <laughs> Just kidding. That's Ernest T. Bass, who was the Shimei equivalent from Mayberry. But for the first time since the troubles between David and Absalom began, the narrator now uses the full title, King David, in verse 5. So we should be perfectly clear that whatever was happening to David, whatever danger he was in, however precarious his reign had become, he has not been rejected by God as Saul had. He was still King David, and it was this reality the Shimei has defied. Do you know that there are people hoping and waiting that we fall just so they can throw rocks at us? There are people who rejoice when a Christian slips so they can say, I knew it, 
Christianity was a sham. Those people are no better than I am. Now often, these people don't contribute anything to life. And so their only consolation is that someone who is trying slips up, that somehow gives them reason to feel better about themselves. I just want us to be on our guard against people like Shimei, who are always ready to throw rocks at us on those days that we are down. Now, should we strive to be a godly example? Absolutely. But if we do slip up and lose our temper or something, it's always good to remember that we are still accepted in the Beloved, no matter what the Shimei's of the world may say to us. Jesus said, let he who was out without sin cast the first stone. Thus, Jesus alone, among all humanity, had the right to throw stones, but he never did. Instead, he carried a cross. But in verse 8, Shimei says the Lord is responsible for all these things because of all the blood that was shed for the house of Saul. This simply isn't true. The Lord is allowing these things to happen, but it has nothing to do with David taking the kingdom from Saul. God did that. Now, why would I bring that out? We must be very careful as Christians to never ascribe any event to God that we do not know whether or not that he had a part in it. Things like when there is an earthquake, some supposed Christian leader will get on TV and say that this is the judgment of God. Now, could it be God's judgment? Maybe. But it could also be that the tectonic plate just shifted because we are living in a fallen world that Romans says is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. We just don't know why certain things happen. And since we don't know, we would be wise to keep our opinions to ourselves. Verse 9, please. Then Abishai the son of Zeruah said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please, let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Let him alone, let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. The next guy we meet is Abishai. And so Abishai says, uh, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please. Well, at least he says please. He's a violent man, but he is polite. Please, just let me meander over there and cut his head off. He'll find it a lot harder to curse you with his head swinging from my hand. What's well, a good thing for Shimei that David wasn't a bloodthirsty man, or he would have lost his head that day. The thing is, Abishai loves David, and he is loyal to a fault. Here's another great lesson that we can glean from this passage. Although Abishai is extremely loyal, 
he is also misguided. It is so important that when we are in the middle of a crisis and people are hurting us or slandering us, either to our face or behind our backs, the counsel that sometimes we have to be the most careful of is the counsel that comes from the people who love us the absolute most. And the reason is they feel the pain when we are hurt, and so sometimes their reasoning skills concerning us can be a little fuzzy. Case in point. A few years ago, I had some extensive dental work done. It was so involved, they had to give me IV drugs just to get me through it. I remember very little of that entire day. Connie said they brought me out in a wheelchair, which you normally don't get to ride in when you go to the dentist. Best day ever. Anyway, I'm still in la-la land, and we are driving home. Well, Connie gets in the wrong lane and is trying to get over when out of nowhere, some guy behind us throws a fit and starts blowing his horn at her. Once again, I don't remember very much of this day. But Connie says she saw a part of me that she had never seen before. No longer was Pastor Bill Jesus' little sunbeam. She said I looked back at him, and then I looked at her, and I said, I'll pull him out of that car. I mean, I wasn't going to cut his head off, but I was going to teach him a lesson, at least in my drug-addled mind. But I now realize that probably what would have happened was he would have hit me with so many right hooks, I would have been begging for a left just for a change in the beating process. I guess the good news was we were still close to the dentist, so I could have went back and got everything fixed. But that wasn't even the worst part. Do you know what Connie did when her knight in shining armor announced what I was going to do? She took one look at me and burst out laughing. <laughs> Which didn't do a whole lot for my confidence, by the way. You'll be glad to know that I came to my sentences. Instead of fighting, we went and ate pancakes instead. They some, some people are lovers, not fighters. I guess I'm an eater. In verse 10, David says, What have I to do with you, Abishai? Now, if you remember, Abishai was also with David in the wilderness of Ziph, hiding from Saul, who was seeking David's life back then. One day, David and Abishai came upon Saul, who was sleeping in a cave. Abishai said, Let me pin him to the ground. The Lord has delivered him into our hands. No, said David, The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now, as Peter would do centuries later in the Garden of Gethsemane, Abishai seemed always determined to defend his king with a sword. But David knew that wasn't the better way. But look at how David does deal with this. David's attitude was one of submission because he accepted Shimei's abuse as coming from the hand of God. David had already previously announced that he would accept anything from the Lord that he sent to him and now he's going to prove it. When David considered that he was both an adulterer and a murderer who deserved to die, and yet God had allowed him to live, why should he complain about some stones and some dirt? How I appreciate David's attitude here. 
Notice how he handled this criticism. If you're taking notes, he handled it in three stages. First, he looked up. At this point in his life, David understood that God was over all things. Now, earlier, he didn't have such an understanding. Earlier, he was pugnacious. He was a fighter. Earlier, it was only the kindness of Abigail that kept him from destroying her husband, Nabal. But now David understood that this attack could not come upon him without the Lord first allowing it. Would to God that we might have that same kind of understanding. If only we could accept that perhaps the Lord has allowed that person to criticize us, not to destroy us, but to develop us. One man said, I'm concerned that Christians are more willing to be destroyed by praise than to be saved by criticism. It's true. We are more willing to feel good about ourselves with the applause of men ringing in our ears than to hear a valid criticism that the Lord has allowed to surface. Secondly, David looked around. If you think Shimei's words are harsh, they're nothing in comparison to what Absalom is trying to do to me, David said. I've erred greatly. My whole family is in utter disorder. When someone puts us down, let's do what David did. Look around. What do I mean? Let's see the mistakes that we have made. Let's think about the blunders that are on our own record. Because however the brutal the put-down might be, it's not even a fraction of what we deserve. It's a pivotal day when we realize that there is nothing good that dwells in our flesh. For at that point, you no longer seek to extol or to defend yourself. and You can finally be free in your Christian walk. Thirdly, David looked ahead. God's hearing these words of Shimei, he said, and maybe he will be kind and merciful to me because of Shimei's cursing. Now you love your kids. You know they're not perfect, but you love them anyway. Now the Bible says that in comparison to God, that if we being evil care about our kids, how much more does our Heavenly Father care about his kids? Jesus said, Blessed are you when men slander you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. So let's look ahead. God knows what we are going through, and he promises us blessing through it. David looked up, he looked about, and he looked ahead. But we have a privilege that David didn't even have. That is, we can look afresh at the Lord Jesus. Jesus died without defending himself, without standing up for his rights, or his reputation, or his ministry. And we are to follow in those same steps. This is going to sound crazy when I say it, but the secret of life really is death. Because when you finally die, all the pressure is off. Not only is that true physically, it's also just as true spiritually. When you truly realize you are crucified with Christ, you won't exalt yourself or always be selfishly concerned about yourself. The secret of the Christian life is to die to self, to get your eyes off yourself and quit wondering why you're always discouraged, why you're depressed, and why you're not happy. 
The way to an abundant Christian life is to always not seek to be blessed, but seek to be a blessing to someone else. Not to seek to be understood, but to seek to understand others. Not to seek to receive, but to seek to reach out to others. And yet we look for anything and everything but death to ourselves. But there is no other way. David was exhausted and discouraged, and yet he never rose to greater heights, I don't think, than when he allowed Shimei to go on cursing him. This is a very important part of the Bible's teaching about the sovereignty of God and the evil that we see in the world. You see, evil never thwarts God's purposes. But neither is evil ever justified because it is used by God for some kind of good. The Lord is able to take evil and with it to achieve something good. David understood that. He was to receive the curses of Shimei in the light of God's purpose and not of Shimei's hatred. Verse 14, please. Now the king and all the people who were with him became weary, so they refreshed themselves there. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. And so it was when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. So Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so will I be in your presence. Of course, Absalom did not know what we know from our study last week, since we have heard that conversation that took place on the summit at the Mount of Olives. We know that Hushai was there in Jerusalem because he was David's friend and he was acting as a spy. Now, Hushai gives the usual respectful greeting, God save the king, but notice he didn't say King Absalom. In his heart, he was referring to King David. But the new king didn't understand what Hushai was saying. In his pride, Absalom thought Hushai was calling him the king. By the way, one downside of being arrogant is that you only hear what you want to hear. In verse 18, Hushai is speaking about David. For the Lord had never chosen Absalom to be Israel's king. And Hushai didn't promise to serve Absalom, but to serve, notice the words, in the presence of David's son. In other words, Hushai would be in the presence of Absalom, but he would be serving the Lord and David. A proud man, Absalom interpreted Hushai's word to apply to himself, and he accepted Hushai as another counselor. The deception is brilliant. It worked because of Absalom's arrogant presumption. Everything Hushai said, however, had a dual meaning. Then the brilliant speech is capped with what to Absalom must have sounded like a complete swap of commitment from David to Absalom. As I have served before your father, so I will also serve you. What more could Absalom ask? But with the benefit of what we know, however, we can understand Hushai's words to mean this. 
before you Absalom, I will be as I've always been, serving your father. Verse 20, please. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give counsel as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now the advice of Ahithophel which he gave in those days was as if one had inquired the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel both with David and with Absalom. Please notice that in verse 20 that although Absalom has great hair and is a darling of Israel, now that he has finally secured his position, he has no idea what to do next. And so he has to ask for advice. In verse 21, Ahithophel is going to give us counsel. And the same man who in verse 23 has said of him that his advice was like the oracle of God, now gives wicked advice to Absalom. Why would he do that? Well, we touched on it before. Remember, Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. And so he was probably still very bitter over what had transpired between them. It would seem he is still carrying a grudge towards David. And what is a grudge? The dictionary defines a grudge as a cherished dislike. And so Ahithophel did not hesitate. His instructions to Absalom were clear, direct, unambiguous, but absolutely outrageous. It's difficult to imagine anything more calculated to offend, disrespect, and hurt David than Ahithophel's cold-blooded counsel that Absalom have sex with each of his father's concubines. It was not simply that such an act would be seen as a claim to David's throne. Absalom has already claimed to be king. It was the father-son relationship that made this advice particularly crude. It involved what the Mosaic Law called uncovering your father's nakedness. Ahithophel said, Absalom, now that you're in the city, have physical relations with each of David's concubines. In so doing, you will show all the people that you despise your father. And so knowing now that you are completely committed to a course of rebellion and that reconciliation with your father is now out of the question, now because of that, they won't be afraid to follow you wholeheartedly. One commentator said it was an irreversible act of the utmost provocation comparable to even rape. But it was not stupid. Ahithophel knew that nothing would make the breach between Absalom and David more definite and irreparable than this. Now, was Ahithophel's counsel righteous and holy? No. But it was clever, it was cunning, and it was pragmatic. And very much like that, some people of the world are easily given the title of the final source of truth because they are given it by an ignorant populace. Can a lot of times people elevate other people above what they deserve? And so perhaps fame had swelled Ahithophel above what he deserved, kind of like today. Today, people want to know what the actor thinks, what the billionaire thinks, 
what the supermodel thinks, in areas of wisdom and morality, even though their success has swollen them above what they have the right to comment on. These are the same people whose personal lives are usually consumed with alcohol and drugs, and some of them even end up taking their own lives. I mean, these are the people you want to take life advice from? Roy Maddox has a song that says something like, just shut up and act, or shut up and sing. Maybe he'll play it for you today at the picnic if you ask him real nice. But no one cares about your ideas of how to disarm North Korea when you're working on your fourth marriage in 10 years. Here we see the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 12:11, when Nathan the prophet said, Because you have taken the wife of your neighbor, your wife shall be taken in the sight of your countrymen. But did you notice where it happened? On the roof. The very same roof where the tragic sequence of events in which King, David's kingdom was now embroiled began. It was the very same roof from which David had spied Bathsheba. And so Absalom's disgraceful deed was a consequence of David's disgraceful deed. Let me be honest as we close. I can look at Ahithophel and what David did to his granddaughter and her husband, and because of that, the death of their baby. And I can look at that, and quite honestly, I can understand why he would be so bitter. In fact, in some ways, I understand Ahithophel better than I understand David sometimes. The problem is, we can understand his bitterness, but we have to look at where it leads. Absalom is going to die. Ahithophel is going to die. 20,000 men of Israel are going to die. And they're going to die under the counsel of Ahithophel. And so while we can understand someone else's bitterness, it doesn't mean that we can go down that path. That's why the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us to beware of even the root of bitterness. I mean, it's not even a tree of bitterness or a shrub of bitterness or something that's sprouted above the ground. It's bitterness that is hidden underneath the ground where only you and God are aware of it. And so he says, beware of even the root of bitterness because it will spring up and defile many. And that is exactly what is going to happen here. The irony is that Ahithophel's counsel actually did accomplish the purpose of the word of God. Ahithophel's counsel was indeed wicked and contemptible. And Absalom's unquestioning acceptance of Ahithophel's advice was inexcusable. And yet behind all this evil was the hand of the Lord achieving his own purposes. In the mysterious way in which God can take evil and employ it to achieve his purposes, this evil act by Absalom was at the same time part of the Lord's plan. David had lost his throne, but God was still on the throne, and he would still keep his promise that he had made with his servant. Faithful to his covenant, the Lord remembered David and all the hardships that he had endured, and he still remembers us this day. And Father, that is what we are thankful for. I would find it easy to say that everyone in here can go back in their minds and think of times that we have blown it. And uh, when we deserve nothing but your judgment 
and yet father you showed us grace instead but after we repented lord you made everything right once again and gave us a clean slate that we could start over i pray that this upcoming week where we would cling to that truth those times when we maybe we do slip up in an area here or there that we would quickly confess it and come back to you knowing it is the kindness of god that leads us to repentance we ask in your name amen